0: But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, "'Only you shall solemnly warn them "'and show them the ways of the king "'who shall reign over them.'" So Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, "'These will be the ways of the king "'who will reign over you. "'He will take your sons and appoint them to chariots.'" He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all of the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to
1: God. God. So have you guys uh, ever wondered what you really value in a leader? When you are looking to a leader, uh, what are the character traits? What are the things that uh, you hope to see, you hope to uh, experience in the leader? You guys got to excuse me. I feel like I have a ton of uh, congestion right now. So I'll try to mute my mic if I have to really clear my throat. So anyways, if we actually look at this question, uh, what do we value uh, in a leader? If we look through history, it's actually very interesting some of the answer and some of the perspective uh, that other Christians have put forth. So at one time in history, there was a nation, uh, and this particular nation, uh, if you were to break it down, they absolutely, in every sense of the term, could be categorized as a Christian nation. Uh, When you break it down, and I get that statistics can never actually judge a heart, and, you know, that's kind of a difficult thing, but at least self-proclaimed Christians, there was a nation that consisted of about 40% Catholic and 60% Protestant, Uh, and they claimed that they were Christians and that they upheld Christian values and morals, and uh, that mattered to them in their leadership. Now, this was actually kind of uh, important for this nation because they had recently experienced uh, somewhat of an economic downturn. Amy, can you turn the lights up, please? Uh, They had recently experienced somewhat of an economic downturn, and they were going through a time of struggle. So really, they kept kind of crying out, and they hoped that they would get a leader. They hoped that they would get a leader uh, that would help make them relevant again. They hoped that they would get a leader that would help restore to them some of uh, the economic prosperity that they once had. They would, if we even want to go so far as to say, they wanted a leader that would make them great again. And so eventually, this leader came on, and this leader had a lot of new radical ideas. Uh, This leader said, hey, we're going to focus on our nation uh, before we focus on any of the other nations. We're going to make us a power again. We're going to make us uh, something that the world will look at and they will envy. And then he started implementing all kinds of new laws, and for the most part, all the Christian writers, all the Christian scholars, all the Christians in the nation, for the most part, loved it at the time. And they loved their new leader. Their leader's name was Adolf Hitler. If we look back at uh, the Germans in the early 20th century, again, uh, statistics, they don't obviously judge hearts, but at least self proclaimed Christians. About 99% of the nation <clears throat> claimed that they were followers of Jesus. Uh, When Hitler came out and when he began uh, promoting Nazi propaganda and he began promoting uh, Nazi policy and practice, it actually was many, many Christians who were in full support of what this new leader was saying. We can look back at history and we can look at scholars like Wilhelm Niemöller and we can look at, uh, there's plenty of writings both from Protestants and Catholics alike supporting the works and the arguments of Hitler, believing that he was what was going to be what was best not only for Germany, but ultimately for the rest of the world. Now, for the sake of uh, being fair, there were known Christians who certainly did uh, speak out against Hitler, uh, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to name two of probably the more prominent ones. But for the most part, again, Christians in Germany at this time in history, they were in support of Hitler. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing that I want to do is I want to hear that is I want to look back and say, how could they? If they really believe Jesus is Lord, how could they look at somebody like Hitler and say he is what's best for our nation? He is what's best for our people. He is who we want to rule over us. But before we judge too quickly, I think uh, that we ourselves need to look in the mirror, because I think this idea uh, of Christians wanting bad leaders to rule over them, I actually think this is more of a people of God problem than it is just a German problem. It's exactly what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, The people of God, they want a leader. They want a new leader. They want to make sure he is strong, he is mighty, he is powerful. They wanted to make sure that this leader is going to make them uh, relevant amongst the nations. They want to make sure that this leader is going to be everything that they hope and dream for. And if we know the story, if we know the story of both Israel's first king and all the kings that come to follow him, uh, the kings themselves ended up not being <clears throat> the leader that the people of God needed. So tune our own lives, politics aside, but who do we want for a boss? Who do we want for fellow co-workers? Who do we want for people that will ever say anything to us? Do we actually value the things that God values in leadership? For the people of God in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and even for us today, I believe here's the main thing that we learn, that Jesus may not always be the leader that we want, but he is the leader that we need. He may not always be the leader that we want, but he is the leader that we need. And so we're going to break that down into two points. We're going to look at the king that we want, and we're going to look at the king that we need. The king that we want and the king that we need. All right, so this first point, the king that we want. So we've been going through the book of Exodus and we know how important identity is for the people of God. Now, if I were to sum it up in one word, what is, you know, one of the most significant parts of the people of God's identity? Uh, It would be freedom. They were once slaves. That was their identity. That's who they were to the Egyptians. But God comes in and rescues them, right? We've been looking through Exodus 1 through 15, and we know how important this is for God and, and God's people, they are free people. But then when we look at the rest of their history, so they leave Exodus, they wander uh, the wilderness for a little bit, They eventually end up in the land of Canaan, but they don't really fully obey the Lord. And then there's all these bad guys in Canaan and they keep end up going back into slavery. They would go to power at one point in time, they would be free for at one point in time, but then these outsiders would come in, would take over the people of God, and they would find themselves in need of a Redeemer. They would cry out to God, just like they did in Egypt, and God would show up by delivering them through a judge, a judge like Samson, a judge like Gideon, a judge like Samuel. You see, they've had judges ruling over the people of God for a long time now, and there's been kind of this sick pattern, uh, again, of the people crying out to God, needing God. He comes in and uh, miraculously delivers them through a judge. Then they forget God's ways, and they end up getting into trouble again and repeat it again and again and again. So, right now, there is arguably who is the greatest judge over the people of God. His name is Samuel. He was a judge, and he was a prophet, and he led the people of God well. He actually did a really good job for what God had called him to, with maybe the exception of one grave error. You see, Samuel, it's in the first three verses that we read here, Samuel really could be uh, accused of nepotism. You see, his sons, I believe it's Joel and Abijah, uh, these two sons, they did not follow after the Lord. These two sons did not walk in God's ways nor in Samuel's ways. Yet, uh, Samuel kind of had this idea, I will make my sons uh, judges and rulers over the people of God. Well, we see this doesn't actually go well. We see that these uh, two characters, uh, looking at verse 3, they took bribes, they perverted justice. They did all kinds of things that a leader over the people of God is certainly not supposed to do. And so this chapter begins with the people of God. They are frustrated. They are frustrated with crooked politicians. They're frustrated with being used and abused and having those who are leaders over them dictate their lives and dictate their hearts in such a way uh, that they suffer and their leaders gain. This is kind of the setting that the people of God arrive in and they cry out and they say that they want a king. Specifically, in verses 5 and verses 19 through 20, they want a king like the nations. They want a king who can get something done. Let me read 19 and 20. But but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all of the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see ultimately what we see here in the people's desire for a king, again, I think any one of us can look and say, yes, they don't want the current leaders that they have who are perverting justice, who are being cruel, who are looking after uh, their own skins and looking at their own gain. But the thing that's sad about this text is they had the leader, and if they only would have looked to him, they had the Lord. And we could go all the way back to verse 7, and we can see And I believe that there is genuine emotion in God's response to this. We could read in verse 7 And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. We have a God who knows what rejection feels like. You see, when we look at the way that this story plays out, the first thing that we should become aware of is oftentimes the things that we want, the things that we believe down into our core, uh, that we really need this thing. If we only had this, life would be better. If we only had this, my problems would go away. I think the first thing that we learn is oftentimes what we want is not actually what's best for us. I think we see that really throughout the trajectory of 1 Samuel chapter 8 But I think we also see, and we're going to go a little bit broader of our perspective here, we also see that oftentimes what the king wants is not what's best for the people. So here's the thing. Uh, Earlier in Scripture, in the book of Deuteronomy, God actually says, hey, there's going to be a time where you want a king. Okay, here's what this king should value. Here's what this king should do. Here's what this king should look like. We could read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and I'm going to go ahead and do that for us. Verses 14 through, I believe, 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother." Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So essentially what we're getting here is God in Deuteronomy, this is right before the people would cross the Jordan River and begin their campaign taking over uh, the land of Canaan. God is saying, hey, there will be a day, there will be a time where you will want a king, where you will desire a king. That desire in and of itself is not bad, but you need to know, here is what I value. Here is what a leader, here is what a king is supposed to look like, here is is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to love my law with all of his heart. He's supposed to know it more than any of you guys so that he can live it out, and you guys may experience justice and righteousness through the rule of this king, just as I would do. This king, he shouldn't be selfish and look after his own gain before all of his people. He should be looking after his people. He should be a servant leader. He should be a servant king. But ultimately, that's not what the people of God wanted. They didn't want a servant king. They wanted a king that was powerful. They didn't want a servant king. They wanted a king who was mighty, who was going to make the people of God prosperous and wealthy, who was going to make all the other nations fear them. They wanted a king that looked like the other nations. And I believe ultimately this is what hurt the heart of God. They didn't want a king like God. They wanted a king that they thought they needed. And if we look at the rest of the story, we look at the way um, we see who the king should be in Deuteronomy 17, but then if we see the way that the history for the rest of the people of God are going to play out, it goes from bad to worse. So, the first king, Saul, Uh, He doesn't love the law of the Lord. In fact, he does try to make a a quick and cheap profit uh, off one of the campaigns that God called him to, and then he gets removed from the throne. David, who we are told is a, a king after God's own heart, he's a man after God's own heart. David has his own failures, does he not? He has his own ways that he screws up, does he not? In fact, again, the, uh, the confession of sin that we read tonight, it was right after David had arguably his greatest failure that he experienced it. And then Solomon. Solomon, David's son. Solomon, in some ways, the promised one. Solomon, who, who was supposed to was embody all of these things. Remember, what is the king not to do? He's not to collect wealth for himself what is the king not to do? He's not to go to Egypt and gather horses. He's not to build up an army so that he has all these tools for war. No, the people of God were called to look different, and how they related to the rest of the nations were to look different. But then we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, we read about King Solomon. It's a little bit of a longer passage, and I'm going to skip around, but you all need to hear this. Second Chronicles 9, verse 13. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. We should be having light bulbs go off. Besides that which the explorers and merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors in the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. I'm skipping forward to verse 17. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were attached to the throne. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. Nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Skipping ahead to verse 22. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Everyone bought his present, articles of silver, of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls, "'For horses and chariots, and twelve thousand horsemen, "'whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. "'And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates "'to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. "'And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, "'and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore. "'And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands.'" Can you see the irony of this list talking about uh, Solomon and what the kingdom of God looked like at this time? Deuteronomy says, hey, here is what a good king will look like. He will care for you. He will love my law. He won't have many wives. Solomon, we're told, he has so many wives and so many concubines. We're told that uh, he won't have a love for money, for gold and for silver. There is so much gold that even his drinking glasses were gold, and silver because of supply and demand meant nothing because there was so much supply. And again, the people of God who are called to be different in how they related to the nations, they were not to collect and amass these uh, weapons of war, these weapons of destruction. Yet Solomon goes immediately back to Egypt and and gathers for himself horses, gathers for himself chariots. When we look at the the trajectory of the people of God… When we look back here at God's warning in First Samuel chapter eight, we can see God knew what was to come. The people of God, what was their identity supposed to be? Free. But here God's warning uh, in First Samuel chapter 8, verse 17, "He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be His slaves." You see, the people of God under the kings that they thought that they wanted, that's exactly what they returned to. In Egypt, at one time, they were slaves to a king. They were slaves to Pharaoh. They thought that they wanted a king like all of the other nations. And when God actually gave it to them, they found that they were no longer free, but yet again, they had returned to their slavery. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he makes an ironic statement, where my father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. In the northern kingdom, uh, Jeroboam, who is a counterpart of Rehoboam, he leads the people into false worship that ultimately will be the beginning of the end from 900 A.D. to 500 A.D., and I'm rounding and I'm, uh, I'm skipping over some really big historical events during that time, but really it's about those 400 years the people of God would suffer under the negligence, under the abuse, under the false teaching of their kings and leaders. And what they would learn is that oftentimes what the king wanted was not what the people needed when I was living in Shreveport, uh, right when I got hired on as for my job as youth pastor, there was another pastor that got hired on, uh, and he was hired on to be—I don't know I can't if I could tell you his title—assistant pastor, associate pastor. But here's the thing. This guy was actually a really big deal uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. This guy could preach Now, I didn't actually care that much for the content of what he had to say, but he was one of the most charismatic, captivating preachers I'd ever listened to. This guy was tall, and uh, for no other way to say it, he was a good-looking dude. He was a guy that people wanted to be around. He was a guy that just had this magnetic personality that you couldn't help but liking him, and you couldn't help but being drawn to him. And I certainly was for quite a while but I remember there was a turning point, and I could not put my finger on it. To this day, I couldn't tell you what was different, but I just felt like, hey, something seems off about this guy. And a lot of the things that he's doing, rather than, you know, kind of talking about God and making a name for God and making a name for Jesus, he kind of seems like he wants all of us to be entertained by him, and he wants all of us to really buy into him more so than God, and is that what we're supposed to be doing as pastors? And then it ended up coming out. After about nine months in the job, after he had gathered for himself such a following, uh, he had ended up having an affair with another woman in the church, And when this became uh, a public, uh, when everybody became aware of this, he went into the pastor's office and said, hey, you're going to give me one year's severance, and you're going to continue paying my um, benefits until I find another job, or, and this is a direct quote, or I am going to sue you all till kingdom come. This guy that we all actually cared about, This guy that we thought, you know, was a great preacher, this guy that we wanted to spend time around, this guy that had this charismatic personality, this leader that, frankly, at this church, at this time where it was at, we thought we needed somebody like him, but we didn't. You see, that's what the people of God learned, that oftentimes what they thought was best, it wasn't at all. And oftentimes what the kings or what the leaders over the people of God, what they would do, what they would implement, it actually wasn't what the people of God needed. They had this desire. They had this thing in their head. This is the king that we want. And for 400 years, they suffered because of it. They suffered under the leadership of their kings. So I think at least the very first thing that we can do, I already asked the question— but I think we should genuinely consider it. What do we want in our leaders? What do we value in those who some way, shape, or form are in authority over us? Do we want a leader that looks like the rest of the nations? Do we want somebody who is strong and powerful and mighty? Maybe, but is that all we should want? Is that all we should care about? You see, I think at the end of Deuteronomy, the thing that we see that mattered the most was a leader who actually cared about the law of God. If they cared about the law of God and Torah was close to their heart, they wouldn't part from the left or from the right, then they would actually lead in the way that God would lead. What do you care about? What do you value in a leader? And is it the same thing God values? It's the first thing that we see here uh, in this text And so as we're talking about this idea of Jesus is the perfect prophet, he is the perfect priest, and he is the perfect king, I think ultimately where we will arrive at, and of course you all knew I was going here, is the second point, that Jesus is the king that we need. So during the Advent season, one of the things that I hope you guys are, are aware of, one of the things that I hope you guys feel in some way, shape, or form is longing. As we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as we sing the words and try to capture what the people of God would have felt and experienced in the Old Testament, we could read they had a longing for a prophet like Moses. They had a longing for a king like David. They had a longing for a priest who was going to be greater and better than Aaron. They had a longing for a leader who would come and he would finally make things right and us too. We have a longing for Jesus because He's not present with us now the way that one day He will be. And so, in this Advent season, as Abby spoke about earlier, as we are repenting, as we're thinking about the things in our lives that we long for more than Jesus, may we, may we join the saints of old, may we join the people of God in longing for a king. So, after the people of God returned from exile, or now to about 500 B.C., They will go, and again, I'm rounding. I'm rounding significantly. If you need the exact numbers, come see me after. Uh, They go about another 500 years uh, without a king. They go about another 500 years where God is quiet, where God is not speaking the way that he once did. And in this silence, uh, their longing grew. Now, I actually said um, the people of God, they didn't have a king. But actually, that's not true. They, they did have kings. Remember what was the very first thing in Deuteronomy about the king over the people of God? He's supposed to be part of the people of God. He's not supposed to be a foreigner. But actually, the people of God from really 500, even to the time that Jesus came into the world, they had foreigners who were kings over them. We could talk about Alexander the Great, and then we could talk about his generals that ruled over them afterwards, and then we could see how the Romans come in, and at the time when Jesus uh, walked the earth, they have a king, and his name is Caesar. And what was so despicable to the people of God was the saying that Caesar is Lord, and this was part of living in this world at this time, the the people of God were called to acknowledge this, that their ruler, that their king, they were called to uh, recognize that He was God and He was Lord, and it was blasphemous, and it was horrible. But by this point, we're looking at a thousand years of abuse by kings, We're looking at a 1,000 years. We're going all the way back to about 900 to, you know, let's call it zero, uh, almost a 1,000 years where kings didn't look out for their people, where kings were tyrants who wanted what was best for them, where they would tax their people so that they could live lives of luxury, kings that could care less about the law of God, kings that could care less about Yahweh. This is what the people had grown accustomed to. This is what the people thought that a king was. And so we could even see that throughout the time that Jesus walked the world, in some way, shape, or form, this is actually the type of king that they expected him to be. We could see times when we preached through the Gospel of John. We saw it a lot, did we not? Jesus would perform a great miracle, and the crowd would be, their minds would be blown. They would say, this is it. He's going to be king. Let's take him. Let's seize him. Let's put a sword in his hand. We got an army right here. We'll go overthrow these Romans. But Jesus says, no, don't you get it? This is not the type of king that I am going to be. This is not the type of kingdom that I am here to establish it. Satan himself, isn't this exactly the type of temptation that he gives to Jesus in his last temptation? Listen, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if merely you will bow down to me and worship me. Jesus says, don't you get it? If I gain the the kingdoms of the world by violating the first commandment, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. I am not here to be served but to serve my people. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to imagine something. You haven't been feeling very well, and so you go to the doctor to get a checkup, and the doctor says, well, hey, you know, I want to run some blood work, and go ahead and stick around. Let's see what the results say, and the doctor comes back and looks white as a ghost You immediately start to feel a little nervous. Oh, no, is this not going to be very good news? And the doctor says, hey, I have a diagnosis for you. There's nothing that we can do about it. You could get second and third opinions, but here's the fact of the matter. You have 12 hours to live. You have 12 hours to live, and nothing can change that. What do you think you guys would want to do? If you knew for certain you had 12 hours to live, how would you want to spend your final hours in life? I've thought about this. Uh, I know for certain I would want to get uh, together my family and my friends and uh, those who I I love and matter to me, and I I would want to cook for them, and I would want us to share uh, a really good meal with with good food and good drink. I know that I'd want to play with my daughter. I know that I'd want to sing with Amy because we love to do all that. Uh, I know all the different things that I would want to do if I had 12 hours to live. And if I'm being really, really honest, most of them would be about me. Jesus knew that he had 12 hours to live, and he washed feet. You see, again, he was a king not like the king from the other nations, He was a king who did not try to make uh, himself great by taking up a sword, by flexing his muscle, by saying, look how powerful and mighty I am. Bow to me, obey me, submit to me. No, he wasn't this. That's what the people of God expected. They expected ferocity, they expected judgment, they expected power. But Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he mourns for them. Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you are not willing. Again, Jesus, the type of king that he is, he's different than our expectation Jesus as king, he's not like the nations. He's not like even the leaders that some of us have experienced in our own life who are cruel and who could care less about you and me, but frankly want to see their own gain and their own, their own name grow in power. No, Jesus is a king who serves his people, his people who at one time he had freed from slavery His people who at one time he had named free and a kingdom of priests and a treasure to him amongst all nations. Well, yet again, they find themselves enslaved. And Jesus knew that in order to become the servant king uh, that he was called to be, he first had to become a liberating king. You see in 1 Samuel 8, at the very end of that text, the very end of that passage, we see there are three things that the people of God ultimately want the king to be. They want the king to uh, judge us, they want the king to go out before us, and they want the king to fight our battles. And that's exactly what Jesus, the servant king, ultimately would do. Jesus has judged us. He has judged every man, woman, and child, and we are found guilty. We are found needing uh, the grace of God. We are found needing the mercy of God because we would rather be abusers and we would rather join in the falsehood of other leaders. We We participate in this, do we not? The world is broken and the world is broken because we are broken. The world is sinful because we are sinful. He judges us and he finds us guilty, but he also goes out before us. Because we are guilty, what are we deserving of? We are deserving of the full wrath of God. But Jesus, as King, again, doesn't judge us and say, have your just punishment. No, He goes out before us, and He takes the wrath of God unto Himself. That's what He does, does He not? On the cross, He goes and He experiences what we rightfully deserve. And in living the perfect life, In suffering and dying for his people, he fights our battles, a battle that on our own we can never win. But Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, the servant king, he was able to win it. In his last 12 hours, when Jesus is washing feet, we've had a whole sermon on this, Uh, but when uh, his disciples are there, Jesus is teaching them and instructing them And he says, hey, listen, you don't get this right now. You don't get how significant and how important what I'm doing for you is right now. But one day you will. And I want you to know this. If you really do view me as master, if you really do call me Lord, hey, listen, I need you to go and serve others the way that I have served you. And so I think that's the final thing that we learn. As Jesus is our true and rightful King, as he is this servant king who loves us and lays down his life for us, as his followers, he calls us to go do the same. So in this Advent season, even now in this next week, I think we should be asking ourselves, how can we be a servant to others? And I think for each and every one of us, there's going to be multiple ways that we could go about doing this. For some of us, it may be willing to have that conversation with A difficult family member that we really, really don't want to. That may be the way that we can serve somebody else in the name of Jesus. Uh, It could be something as simple as being willing to take the spot on the very back at Polaris or at Easton uh, rather than trying to fight and cut somebody off and be a jerk like so many of us can be. Perhaps if we even think about it, for those of us who do have children, Maybe we serve our children this holiday season by not giving into to uh, the greed and the selfishness that sometimes Christmas can be about, but we serve our children by reminding them and teaching them that, hey, Christmas is actually about more than just giving and receiving gifts, but it's about Jesus, the servant king. Whatever it looks like, whether it be a family member, whether it be a stranger or a neighbor or somebody you work with, may you serve others as Jesus has served you. Oftentimes, the king that we want, it's not actually the king that we need, the leader that we want, it's not actually the leader that we need. This Advent season, as we feel the longing of the people of God, may we remember Jesus. He is the king that we need. He has come, and one day he will come again and set all things right. In the meantime, May we serve others as we serve Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. Uh, We thank You that You are our servant King. We thank You that You don't ask us to do something that You, Yourself, are unwilling to do. But Lord Jesus, broken as we are needy as we are, You love us and You meet us. And you serve us. And we know, we know that even now you serve us. God, would you help us to have a longing for you, uh, even now, supernaturally, spiritually? Would you be stirring our hearts up that we desire more of you? Would you help us share in the longings of the people of God who have come before us, who are such a great cloud of witness in their faithfulness to you? God, this Advent season, Help us to long for you. Lord Jesus, we eagerly await your return. Thank you for being the king that we need. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.